This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Scorned family members, we are so very happy to have you. Welcome to Film versus Film, the podcast, where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other, which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. In this episode, we're looking at two very creepy films that feature modern-day pagans. One is about a very British police officer investigating a murder on a small island. And the other is about American college kids visiting an overly friendly topsy-turvy festival in Sweden. Both films feature maypoles and sacrifices. One is from the early 70s and the other a very contemporary filmmaker. Today it's Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man versus Ari Aster's Midsummer. I'm a filmmaker and someone who isn't afraid to put on the jester's costume, Craig Anderson. And as always, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and landlord's daughter, Herschel Isaacs. Hi, everyone. The pairing is perfect because I'm not summer, Midsummer today, Bruce. You're on Midsummer. Yeah. Really interesting to see how you see these two fit together. All right, we're also joined by Herschel's identical twin brother, a man who is often caught skinning the fool on the campus lawn. <laughs> It's the May Queen Professor of Film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I actually like that idea, the May Queen Professor of Film. Yeah, that like, works for me. You're just there it's for the title. day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're like the Chancellor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> actually, can I say, yes? um, my closest connection to a movie like Midsummer mm. uh, is when I, when every so often I go in the academic procession if I've got a student graduating or procession? something. Procession? You know the procession? You know when you graduate? Are you serious? And the yeah. academics come through? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, whenever I've got a student graduating, I yeah. join the procession. Okay. Um, and it's lovely. And uh, I always try to be the mace bearer. Yeah. So the last what? person... <laughs> Carries and it's a heavy mace, yes. right? So whenever, because most of the academics don't want to, it's do such it. a heavy responsibility. <laughs> so most of the academics like, go, oh no! They, they, whenever the guy goes, okay, so who's going to be our mace bearer? Mm. You can see all the academics retreat, like nobody wants to carry it. Wow. Whereas I'm going, hey, give me the mace! I want the bloody mace, right? And the guy was because I was so excited the first time I did it. The guy said to me, you know what the mace is, right? And he said, in the traditional procession, which is what the academic procession uh, mm -hmm. reproduces, um, the mace bearer protects the leader. So I walk behind the chancellor, the chancellor goes, yes. and I'm last, and I carry a mace like this, so that if anyone attacks our party, you throw down. I'm the defender. Yeah. That's that's literally <laughs> the derivation of that. And so I love it. I walk through, and it's really lovely, because all the parents are there, and they're like photographing me like mm -hmm. crazy, because mm -hmm. I'm the mace bearer. All right, well, look, there you go. It's a heavy burden to be an academic. Sometimes you have to <laughs> carry a stick. <laughs> Now, the three of us grew up together on Darug land in Western Sydney in a suburb that was created in 1980 and sat adjacent to the newly created M4 motorway. The suburb was called St. Clair and we met at a little primary school called Clairgate. Then the three of us attended St. Clair High School where we studied for six years and during that time, 
the three of us and a few other people would often take refuse. Refuse? Re- refuse. refuse? What do we no, got? Refuse. refuse is garbage. I take a dump. Um, <laughs> the three of us would often take refuge in the school library, which was run by our librarian, Jackie Hawks. Jackie Hawks. Oh, the, yeah, Mrs. Hawks. She was Mrs. so nice, man. Lovely person. Okay, so the, we, this was in a big building called E Block. Yeah. You remember E Block? So E Block, you came up the stairs, building. the blue carpet, yeah. Yeah. and you walk straight into the library and you go left and right to the classes, which ran in a yes. circle. So right? I should say, I contacted Jackie Hawks, our librarian. Well, just recently. Yeah, yeah, just two days ago to say, hey, we're going to do the library on our podcast. And she was excited. Um, but she's still working in the library. No, she doesn't work in St. Clair Library. Because E-Block burnt down. Remember? Yes. Say that again. Someone burnt down E-Block. burnt down entire E-Block and it had to get rebuilt. So they didn't. So we were very lucky in the (laughs) And they didn't rebuild the library. They didn't. So the library, and Jackie wrote to me going, the wonderfully round library at St. Clair High School from the past has been replaced after the fire with a corridor passage with some tokenistic, and she puts in inverted commas, books. (laughs) Um, on either side of the walkway. In other schools, their libraries have totally disappeared into a land of screens or variations of information oh only. Wow, that's so sad to hear. No, but this is interesting because it's part of the evolution of the library. Obviously, I work at the university library network, yeah. right? And so it's very much about space and about different ways of communicating and the different ways people or learners pick up information nowadays. So I kind of understand that, but it is a, it's a really complex sure kind of evolution. Like the function of the library was to when, when we were there. Like when I went to the library, I used to like going and browsing the books. Well, that's okay. But we now should, there's no books. We have, we've jumped ahead here, but our yeah. experience was hanging out in the library because it was a, a social event. It was sort yeah. of social. I mean, you couldn't talk, but we <laughs> lo- <laughs> we could whisper to each other. Yeah. It was so much fun to be around books and media. There were also tons of, you know, were there DVDs, VHS back then? I can't I don't remember think, the I don't library. Think library. Well, I know I what they did have. They had those um, coming of age books. Where did I come from? Okay, and I yeah. remember our friend Glenn David used to like run around and he'd throw it in front of you and run off laughing. <laughs> so I do remember that's how you that. Your time. <laughs> but I remember Jackie. I I really loved Mrs. Hawk. She was amazing. Yeah. She was. Uh, she had an American accent, which yes. made her, you know, kind of it was exotic. exotic. Yeah, it yeah, was unusual. Exotic. But yeah, it also was like, wow, that. she's connected to the movies I watch. She's connected yeah. to that world. She was the first person I met who had an American accent. Other thing is with Jackie Hawks was that she's you could tell immediately, like you can with some people, that she was truly passionate about what she was doing. Yeah, and she really cared. You know, it's a nice thing to also acknowledge on this podcast. Then is the effect. Some of those people, especially in high school, had on us. Yeah, I think I don't think people acknowledge that enough, right? I mean, you hear about it, but I can certainly say for me, the memories of people like Miss Hawks, right, Jackie mm. Hawks, they they impact you, and as you grow up, because you're those years are so formative, they they kind of make you into a certain kind of person, and it's like amazing, like uh, that that you know certain people were so inspiring and kind of carried us into a certain you know a, a way of living. And I don't want to be, I don't want to take this into, down a political path or anything like that, but that's why I always say that, you know, at public school, you can get some of the best teachers you ever find because these folks yeah. uh, really connect with you. Yeah. And, well, Jackie Hawks, we, we used to have conversations with teachers way back then about movies. Yeah. Remember Mrs. Dunk, the history teacher? She yeah. loved Indiana Jones. Yeah. She absolutely yeah. loved Indiana Jones. Well, I, what I loved about Jackie as well was that she was encouraging of culture. Whereas other, no class really, that was no one's job. 
to yeah. say you should care about culture, you should care about movies, you should care about... Like, remember, also she would do seasonal displays. Yes. You know, so there'd be a display, a nice little... Lots of cutouts and decorations for Halloween, and she'd put the Halloween books out, but she would do all of these seasons, cultural seasons, whereas no other class really bothered to do that. Now that we're older people and now that, you know, we've been through university and so on, I wish our education at St. Clair had had more of what you'd talking about there. Pushing like the culture. Engaging in culture. In, yeah. For example, engaging in politics. Yeah, yeah but right? it's complicated. Like, there was just nothing there. But the reason it's complicated is you go back to St. Clair, remember one of the things we were <laughs> most... Remember someone burnt it down <laughs> like a student. But we were lucky because our high school experience was probably one of, what, 30 different ethnicities in yeah. our school. Yeah. There are some schools... Yeah. Uh, and we were very fortunate for that. It was very multicultural. So, uh, the other thing I want to say is, uh, do you guys remember that Jackie Hawks would take on a student assistant for a little bit? <laughs> yes. And then at yes. lunchtimes, you'd be checking out books to people yeah. with the old manual when you'd be stamping yes, stamp. the back of the oh, book. I love that I used so to love much. that. Like, I, it, it, you felt as though you were... And that's it, right? You felt like you belonged to something cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the three of us, anyway. So, Craig, this is a good topic because... The library meant a lot to us. We used to spend time also at St. Clair Public Library. but mm. um, yeah. Well, the high school library, here's the books I loved there. Asterix. Yeah. Um, I'd get all Tintin the Asterix. Tintin was my absolute. Oh, see, These I was days, an Asterix boy. I'm still obsessed with Tintin. Um, we, I got the Babysitter's Club I was into. Really? <laughs> yeah, I used to read them all. I don't think all. I've ever read any Babysitter's Club. Uh, yeah, whatever. I read all of the Hardy Boys mm-hmm. uh, through Investigators, Nancy Drew. Uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure book yeah. selection. Oh, I, re- I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Clear. And Same. then we got into the whole world of like Stephen King and they had heaps of Stephen but King. But see, that's so. the important thing. So our school library took me, well, it certainly it took me all the way from like Hardy Boys mm. and Three Investigators and Nancy Drew. Yeah. And then, you know, we did Where Eagles Dare and so that a copy of Where Eagles Dare I borrowed that. Then they had Day of the Jackal, mm-hmm. and I, I, I read that through our school library, and then onto Stephen King and Dean Coons and and what people would say, okay, mm. these are grown-up books now. Uh, again, it's like my love of the video store. It's a physical space, and I loved learning about the Dewey Decimal System mm-hmm. and, and what where you could walk around in different <laughs> numbers. There was no better place. I don't know if you guys can remember the 700 St. Clair High, uh, the high yeah. School Library. There were so many hardcover books. They were always taller because they were always the art books. Francisco Goya, yeah. I, oh, I wow. really got into his art because there were some cool books there. Did you there. get into that at, at high school? Yeah. See, I only encountered that later. No, well, right? I, I, I wish I, I was hanging out in the 700s. Place. I'd see the Goya books and I'd see yeah, Witches wow. Sabbath and I'm like, whoa, that's cool. Fantastic. But the best book ever, what brings us back to this podcast was um, a book about horror movies. It was called Horror Movies, and it had an orange, the jack-o'-lantern from Halloween on the poster. <laughs> but the, you open it up, and the first page is the Wicker Man and Christopher Lee standing in front of the you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the pyre, and yes. it was the coolest image. And that's also where there'd be a lot of stuff about Hammer Horror, because it was made in the early 80s, this book, or 80s yep. or something. So there'd be Ingrid Pitt all through it, and... Vampire love. I mean, I love Hammer Horror so much. Yeah. It's one of my favourite traditions. I mean, Hammer it'll come Horror. up today in our talk, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The Hammer book, Horror is just great. The book that set me down a rabbit hole from which I haven't really yet returned was a book called Great Mysteries of the World. Yes. Every Saturday, Saturday yeah, afternoon. really, unfortunately, went into a, a sort <laughs> so, of quasi. Are you talking about Saturday afternoon, Great Mysteries yeah, on Channel yeah. 7? So, okay, so Leonard with Nimoy Leonard was the host. If we assume that Bigfoot is real, and that men are closing in on this seemingly gentle monster, then we must prepare for that first meeting. 
I should tell our American listeners that it's In Search Of was the program in America That's in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. But then it was rebranded in Australia as Great Mysteries it's of the great World. Mysteries but the world. best thing about that broadcast is that it had Nosferatu, like the, the, the silent film Nosferatu, yeah. the moment where he looks up yeah. from you know, yeah. the sunlight yes. approach. It used to terrify me that yeah. over That was on the intro, sequence. right? Yes. Yeah, on the intro. Yeah, yeah. But that book, Great Mysteries of the World, it had your kind of full-blown supernatural stuff, mm. like a spontaneous combustion. Yeah, and yeah, I got yeah. into that. But it also had entries on, okay, who killed JFK? Yes. So then I read everything I could find on JFK. I went down the Vince Bugliosi pathway <laughs> of reading his JFK. That got me into um, first onto Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm. Craig, you and I have talked mm-hmm. about Helter Skelter previously. That book, Great Mysteries of yeah, the World. Yeah, I love that. It's book. where it all began for me. <laughs> the one I want to, the one I just want to, uh, and I'll, it's a shout out to my to our dad Bruce and I, who my, our dad's passed now. But um, one thing they did was uh, was the the Egyptian technology that they discovered with the pyramid. Mm. And in this book, that little half page exercise, because that little workshops you could do yeah, in this book. Yeah, yeah. And um, so my dad and I we constructed a pyramid out of cardboard and to put the, a razor blade in. Yes, I did the same thing. Did you? The same book. Yeah. What the hell's wrong with you two? Man? We put a razor. <laughs> my dad a cardboard pyramid. My dad got a, a razor. My dad yes. got a razor blade out of his shaver. Mm. We put it under the thing on the doorstep under a full moon, right? Yeah, yeah. And then we went back a month later, sat in the corner, went back a month later, my dad put it back in his razor. He shaved a month later. He's probably hacked his chin off because yes. the thing's got to be rusted or whatever. He goes, you know what? I think it's sharper. That's the way. That's the beauty. That <laughs> was the you, beauty Mr. of my Ryan dad. He was always, he was always <laughs> up for the challenge. It was lovely. That's so exciting. Well, that is at St. Clair High School Library, and that's where all of that stuff came from, and it inspired mm. so much thought and creativity. And that's the thing about, it's you know, I love I love, love where that discussion just went because it goes directly into Wicker Man and Midsummer. Yeah, right? yeah. That's great. But that's that's totally where I can see Wicker Man. The first yep. image of that is from that. Well, when I first saw Wicker Man as a young person, it oh, was like, yeah. oh my god! This but is also like where that, it's at. those movies, I then searched for for years at university, yeah. finding them on tape, and then continued into my collection of ten thousand videotapes. Yeah. Was always like hunting for that stuff that I l- saw early on in the library. You know, I love that. And in some ways, I still go back to those sorts of things. Like mm. I, that's why one of my treasured collections is the. Uh, um, Hammer Blu-ray collection. Yes. Because I, like, I want, the, it's B-grade, it's not premiere cinema, mm. but they were doing things differently. The Wicked Man is a strange movie. You know, yeah. Midsummer is a strange movie. Well, there it is. Jackie Hawks, uh, thank you for emailing us. She now describes herself as an LOL, a little What's old. What's that? A little old lady. Oh. Um, she says she's uh, working, she's absorbed in creating a newsletter for the Children's Book Council of Australia. Oh, man. Um, oh, and, cool and it's a website that? they've got called Kids Corner. You can check out Kids Corner. It's all about encouraging kids to read. So thank you, Jackie. You were a Thanks, big part of Jackie. our lives. Yeah. On today's episode, we will feature spoilers for both films. So this is your last chance to watch them before the idea idyllic setting turns sour. If other films pop up along the way, we'll do our best not to spoil them. Let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show is The Wicker Man from 1973. Novelist Robin Hardy ran a transatlantic production company where he wrote episodes of drama TV during the 1960s as well as many TV commercials. In the early 70s, he wrote and directed what many considered to be one of the best horror films of all time, The Wicker Man. 
is the story of a puritanical police sergeant played by the equaliser himself, Edward Woodward. Uh, that's an old 80s TV show that, you know, that uh, Woodward was in, that we used to watch, um, who arrives on a small British island after receiving an anonymous tip-off about the murder of a 12-year-old girl. He is met with a multi-generational community who all seem to deny the existence of the girl. The sergeant becomes more and more concerned by the residents of the island who are obsessed with baldy songs, bizarre medical remedies, pagan rituals and all aspects of fertility. Her ailment is lively and strong to the taste. She's brewed with discretion and never with haste. You can harm all you like if you swear not to waste the landlord's daughter. The sergeant soon meets Lord Summer Isle, the rich grandson of the island's founder, who then leads the May Day activities that culminate in the sergeant being entrapped by the townsfolk and offered up as a sacrifice to appease the pagan gods. I should mention that Lord Summers Isle is, is played by Christopher Lee himself. Mm. From the whole history of horror e- and every hammer horror. horror film and ever. In fact, I got, I got a little bit of Christopher Lee when I was researching this in terms of what he thought of, he, of his performance oh, and, and awesome. how it's in his canon. Oh, it's great. so strange to see him in a dress in that. It's excellent. All right. The film features a weird mix of traditional folk and pop music, most of which is sung on screen by the characters. On completion of the film, the studio considered it unreleasable and decided that it should have a different ending and be double-billed with Nicholas Rogue's horror film, Don't Look Now. It barely managed to break even. However, in the decades that have followed, the film has been re-released, re-edited, restored and re-evaluated by film lovers and critics alike. Today, it is considered a classic and is often ranked as one of the scariest films of all time. I also reluctantly have to mention that there is a 2006 remake with Nicolas Cage, uh, <laughs> famous for its bee-stinging finale. Herschel, you're the kind of free-spirited, Satan-loving pervert <laughs> who worships this kind of filth. What's your take on The Wicker Man? As soon as I saw it, I wanted to be in it. Now, um, Craig, you said that this film is now considered to be one of the classics of horror. In prepping for the episode, I read a whole bunch of reviews, but I want to start off Bruce, I don't know if you remember, but do, do you remember that Wicker Man was part of that now famous collection that we reference throughout this podcast that mum and dad had in terms Did of they? their pirate? The bootleg I, stuff. I vividly remember oh, one I of the bootlegs. Even, I didn't know that. Or we came across it in some way. But here's the yeah. weird thing about it. We were too young to truly understand what the Wicker Man was. I think there's a part of me that thinks our family thought it was just the nuttiest thing of all time. <laughs> uh, because when you watch it, it's weird, right? It's just straight up weird. I thought it was a carry-on comedy. But also, <laughs> we, we all came through the era of um, Catholic horror. Yeah. You know, the, mm-hmm. so we're, we're exorcists. Rosemary's yeah. Baby. We're orthodox. I mean, Rosemary's Baby is an interesting one, but certainly to, to suddenly walk into the world of pagan horror or folk horror, mm. it's like weird, right? I, I want to start by saying that um, Empire, in assessing the history of British horror, yes. referenced some interesting stuff because this speaks to what we've been doing recently. They did Powell's Peeping Tom. They considered that. Obviously not, strictly speaking, British, but with British funding and stuff like that. Polanski's Repulsion. Mm-hmm. And a film that I did, hadn't even heard of, but I since started reading a bit about, 1968's Witchfinder. <laughs> yeah. um, I when, didn't know that one. When talking, General? Yes. Oh, I can't remember. Something like I that. I didn't know about it, but it's considered to be really yeah. cutting edge. And the aim, the argument was, was to take Britain out of the hammer mold, to actually go beyond the hammer ah. mold and to make horror 
something of an art form. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a big movement in the 60s. Like, but now consider this for a call by Empire Magazine. Empire Magazine said, having said that, and all of that, and those great movies, that The Wicker Man, the 1973 version, stands head and shoulders above all of them. Now, that is a big call. Abo- you, you mean, like, above repulsion? Considered the, the best, the best... Statement I mean, from repulsion them is just an unqualified, total, insane well, it's above peeping masterpiece. Toms, apparently, as well. Right. <laughs> so, um, I normally leave this to to you two as um, more of the nerdy uh, contribution to our podcast. <laughs> but I do want to talk about the process a little bit mm-hmm. in in the Wicker Man. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about the ideas, the paganism, because I I'm, I think we're going to cover more of that in Ariaster's movie. Yeah. But the process is fascinating. It's probably the most fraught kind of development process that I've read about. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I, when I was reading, it was a little, little bit of a suspenseful kind of process because well, how did we get to where we are? Well, it's kind correct of me a, if I'm wrong, this is the director's first film. Yeah, and it's, it's kind and of a miracle that yeah. we're actually talking about this movie right now when you hear about how this thing came to be. You know, kudos to all the people who really believe in a vision and they stick to it, and they won't give up on it no matter what they're facing because that's kind of the, the product of this. And Christopher Lee, as as an actor involved, he's got to be given massive credit for making this whole thing possible. Christopher Lee, he was a, a big star at the time. Huge. Like I he mean, was, he was the lead-type ho- horror figure of, of this yeah. kind of schlocky horror. He was the new Dracula. Everyone yeah. knew uh, yeah, that guy as yeah. Dracula. He actually said, in his opinion, which is probably a little bit, biased because he's one of the stars of the movie but he said it was one of Britain's greatest ever movies Mm. but Michael Dealey who was the head of uh, British Lion who bankrolled the entire movie Mm. said it was one of the 10 worst films ever made (laughs) so that's interesting but I think it's also because the movie runs so against the grain Mm. of what was the norm in that time because when I think if you're looking at the late 60s it's a very odd horror movie for the late 60s even Hammer had a whole template, right? It, it, yeah. it, 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 it had a certain aesthetic sensibility. We should, we should explain Hammer to people who aren't familiar. We're saying yeah. this word Hammer. Hammer was a studio, right? Yes. And they mostly produced horror and th- most of it was period horror. So it was always Dracula and Frankenstein. and mm. It was always set in a faraway world and there was Peter Cushing was always usually in it. Yep. There was a bevy of beautiful women who were always in it, mm. excellent actors. And Christopher Lee was always the bad guy. And it had a very... And there was a lot of folk horror. Yeah, so it was a site of kind of folk horror in 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 movies, and you could churn them out quickly though. You could, they were low they budget, were, yes. and they were like a Bloomhouse or an A twenty four, so to speak, a smaller studio working out of England, and they were rivaling the sex comedies of the sixties. Yes. They were also so it was kind of like a franchisable moment. It was and another. They the critical thing was they weren't art house movies. They yeah. certainly weren't considered art house at the time. It's kind of like now a Benny Hill horror, of, right? Like it's it's, it's but like, it's it's but. You know, I think Sam Hammer is just astonishingly good, right? Yeah. But at the time, people saw it as like second tier. You, if you were a big Hammer fan, you were not a serious connoisseur of cinema. But it has that idea of like how Doctor Who in England is a yeah. thing, like a, a massive sci-fi audience who follow Doctor Who. But it's kind of like it's it, it, it's it plugs into the tradition of theatre in England. I think that it's it can be a bit hokey, and people yeah. are willing to suspend. And the sets disbelief are elaborate and kind of silly. It's I see it as kind of what Roger Corman was trying to do in America, almost at exactly the same time. Yes, but Corman Col- was cheaper, even he, he was right. cheaper. But I also say his stories were more wildly different, uh, yeah. whereas Hammer was more like. A cookie cutter, you would always... It's like going to yeah. a repertory theatre where you always know you're going to get the same no, sort of thing. Yes. Do you yeah. both know 
Coleman's role in The Wicker Man. No, I no. didn't know Coleman okay, so was we, involved we, we, with The We're going to come to that. Okay? But okay. it does not surprise that me that he got a piece of it when because I read, that dude was trying to get when him. When I read anything. that Coleman <laughs> somehow played a role in what happened, I'm going, yeah. yes, Coleman's right, involved. Right, tell us how it happened. Peter Snow, who was the producer of The Wicker Man, and Christopher Lee had known each other previously. And so they come up with this idea that we're going to revolutionize horror, and then they go to Anthony Schaefer. Now, Anthony Schaefer had just come off Sleuth, now, I don't know if uh, recently oh, yeah, you've seen yeah. Sleuth, wow. yeah, but that's, that's, he that's Lawrence Olivia and Michael Caine. That, that's mm. a very unusual, very strange structure to a whodunit. Mm. It's basically a play, but filmed, and it's yeah. kind of set in well, one location. Sleuth, to it's me, good. always feels a bit like a Hammer movie. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Especially the setting. Snell and Lee both waived their salaries to keep the budget under half a million pounds for this mm. entire thing. And, that, and almost all of it is shot on location mm. and for and under half a million so pounds at the time. Yeah. When the movie is completed and shown, it's basically buried by all the people who finance the film. Yeah. There's, one, there's one claim that on, on driving down the M3 in transporting the reels to London, the, some of the reels were used as landfill on the road. Wow. And so Christopher Lee said there was a conspiracy against this film from the very beginning in that they didn't want it to succeed. They didn't think it was appropriate to depict horror in the sense to depict the nudity. But he said it, they never admitted to it. It mm. was They were coming after the movie from the beginning. So Christopher Lee does an interesting thing and it sort of references what you both said about he's standing at the time uh, in British horror but also in world horror. He calls up a bunch of friends of his who are critics, and they, they have this calling on, that knock-on event, and a whole bunch of critics start watching The Wicker Man. Even Hang on, Christopher Lee called Christopher them. Lee right. called a bunch of people. Now, the, the Nicholas Rogue piece on Don't Look Now is an important thing. They put mm. the two together, hoping that it would get a little momentum out of it. A bunch of critics go to it, and they give it rave reviews. But because of an explicit attempt to quash the film, really, mm. nobody really sees it. It was makes the film, no box apart office. from people saying it's bad, was it also considered somehow sacrilegious? Yeah, or? that's what I'm wondering. Why was there Is this it, yeah. attempt to silence the movie? Yeah, I, I, mean, looked, I looked for that. It wasn't so much that because remember at the time, there's a lot of nudity making its way around uh, a well, horror well, well, the well, 60s is a stuff? massive yeah. time. I mean, there was double the nudity in the 60s and now you can't do nudity now at all. In mm. the 60s, every movie was I'd actually like to investigate more of the relationship between Michael Dealey um, Peter Snow and Christopher Lee, because it almost it's it's almost uh, to some extent it's a little bit neurotic, the mm. the, the the degree to which they, they they're at each other. So then Dealey wants to make money out of the thing. Uh, who's Dealey? So he's the person who was the head of bankrolling, a British oh, lion yeah. that bankrolled yeah. the whole thing. They send it through to Khan, and Khan rejects it. They won't they won't screen the Isn't movie. Isn't that astonishing? Khan wouldn't take the weekend. I mean, I watch the Wicker Man now. And within five minutes, it's obviously it's, a, it's a it's a classic, brilliant it's, film. It's so well made. So and look, I can see how people would say it's a little <laughs> hokey at times. Come on, but I mean, the location of the island is so beautifully yeah. evocative. Yeah, right? but what and about he's flying there in a, in a in a water plane and there's that weird <laughs> folk song over the opening time? Like, oh I, boy. I mean, I think in some ways it's almost like the movie was either stepping back in time. Mm. or stepping forward in time and was not of that moment. Because you write it, it's a very strange experience. One of the things happening here is that Dealey and the people associated with it, the people who finance it, and the status quo at the time, I'm, I definitely get a sense that they feel 
all right, these guys are sort of taking the piss. This mm. is ridiculous. Mm. It's, it's too silly. It's, it's mostly silly, they're yeah. thinking. So for that reason, they think we're going to be laughed at. If not for Anthony Schaefer, who legend has it, once had to stop two people coming onto set who came on location to try and shut down the whole thing and somehow he held them up and got them an Wait, extra couple of days. Remind me who Schaefer is? Schaefer's the dude who Christopher Lee and Peter Snell went to and said, what would you write if he's the... Right, so critic, so what, right. what, what, okay. No, 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 he's no. The, the creator, the, the oh, story. The, right. Screenwriter. The screenwriter. So what would you write to take Britain into the very forefront of horror. And he goes, it's his idea to use sacrifice because at this point, it's mm. not really done. Mm. It's really dangerous territory. So Anthony Schaefer has to get a lot of credit for getting this thing off the ground in the first place. Now, here's where Roger Corman comes in. Dilly can't get the movie screening anywhere. In the UK, it's made no money. It's just a financial loss. So he calls up Corman and Corman says, you know what you need to do? You need to create another cut of it. And then when it gets to America, it's going to land more positively. Corman takes out about 12 minutes of the movie and Christopher Lee goes nuts. <laughs> Christopher Lee says, it's not even the same movie. Anthony Schaefer says, I'd rather not have the movie play anywhere than ever see Roger Corman's versions <laughs> on the screen. Yeah. So it's a, for me, it's a shout out to getting the film done in the first place. Anthony Schaefer summed it up brilliantly. All right. He said what happened here. Um, and the reason it took the film 30 years to get an audience was all about cowardice and cons uh, it was about cowardice, not conspiracy. He said, and in quotes, the film business or what's left of it in England likes to play it safe. The wicker man played with fire. Like, oh, a true lyricist, right? A true lyricist. So I just want to bring it back and circle back to as a result, this is my take. When I watched The Wicker Man now or when I watched it six months ago or so, I saw, I certainly saw Midsummer. But I saw films like Get Out, and I saw these films that are, in, in its first instance, they're, they're tremendous first-person expressions of horror. When you watch it, you feel like you've been taken from your outside world and sent into mm. a completely foreign place. Now, that's part one. It's very first-person. When That's, that's also when my that experience of it. Like I think Edward Woodward's journey is so terrifying it, because he comes as the cop, the authority, mm -hmm. and he ends up being the patsy. He's he's the sacrificial. And man, look about and, right? and, and consider because if you've seen if you've seen the slightly longer versions, you'll start off with Edward Woodward in church with his family, and he's very pious, and he gives a bit of a speech about the importance of Christianity. When you, when you cut to the island and the plane, the water plane lands, you'll see that we get a lot of shots from the plane. So it's us arriving with mm, Edward yeah. Woodward, and then the island is the other, right? Why is this important? For me, it's this tantalizing feeling that something bad is up. Something has started. Something is underway, but you don't know what it is. Think of Get Out or Midsummer. Things are gradually and sequentially yeah. getting well, Midsummer worse. Midsummer is clearly just riffing on Wicker Man, yeah. right? I mean, that's a deliberate kind of... Uh, exchange in between Wicked Man and, and Midsummer, I think. And the view is forced early on to this position. And I found it I found it pretty disturbing. You come cold to this movie, like I'd sort of defy anybody to guess where it goes. You you have no idea where it's mm. going. But you're uneasy the whole way through. It's very it's pretty hard to articulate. I think that that's its strongest attribute. It's a mystery that's unfolding with the worst possible consequences. And as a viewer, you were smack bang in the middle of it through the protagonist. And if Edward Woodward's the protagonist in this film, then Summer Isle, 
the, the person, mm-hmm. but the place, mm. that's the antagonist. It's a good versus evil, whichever is good or evil, at war in a completely secluded location that you can't escape from. And again, I, I know I referenced the Agatha Christie limited setting again, but that's why this movie, or one of the reasons it's so powerful. I mean, one thing I want to add, I love that idea of Edward Woodward coming to the island and the island, he doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on in this island. But it's precisely because it's not that Christian clear d- dichotomy of, you know, Satan versus God in a battle like the exorcist mm. for your soul. It's that if we try to define the nature of, like I'm going to put inverted commas, the evil, it's really difficult to define. It's not even really precisely evil. It's a kind of folk heritage, right? Yeah. These are people who dance and sacrifice. And what I find disturbing about the film is that it's pulling you into the the naturalness of that behavior. That's what makes the film so fascinating well, to me. What about when he meets Christopher Lee, which is a fantastic scene? Mm. Did you see yeah. the man with the Did you see um, the the man with the golden gun in, <laughs> yeah. in that scene? He's yeah. sitting in the chair, and then he comes around, and he's suddenly <laughs> there. Well, I think it's one of the key lines out of the entire film. In that, um, Edward was going, um, well, "What about the the, the the one true God?" And and he's like losing it, right? Mm. And Christopher Lee says, "Well, yeah, gods are not dead," and and there's yeah. a there's a there's a division between the Edward Woodward world and Summer Isle, and it permeates through the film. Um, it's just fantastic that the, the, the joke, to an extent that your, 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 your imminent death can be a joke, but it's on Edward well, Woodward. On that point, maybe the film was viewed as sacrilegious great, like what well, you were saying okay, before. Because so if you're challenging the one true God, I'm guessing the 60s in England, British horror, that would have been pretty in your face. Well, I mean, it's not just against the, the Christian heritage of England, but it's also that it is like a um, went to a foreign place. Mm. It's a horror where someone turns up in a... You look at what was happening in Italy uh, just around this period or just after with all these zombie stuff going yep. in and finding things that are weird. And uh, even Mondo Carne, which is uh, 68, yep. like the, which is a few years before this, it's about going to the other... All, all the othering of other cultures. You turn yep. up, the other cultures are um, heathens, so to speak, yeah. and mm. that you don't fit. This is like saying us, the the British are also that. And before we became Christian, we were this, which is a terrifying Absol- and thought. And that's a massive for tradition in British, you know, literature, yeah. art, um, you know, Scotland, Ireland. You know, they have these long pagan histories, right? Yeah. And I wonder if it was seen as an affront, a kind of moral affront, like that it was objectionable to show... I mean, the movie well, doesn't is, exactly I mean, make I mean, I them think, out okay, to be can evil. I, can I right? tell you what is the most interesting thing? At first, it's like, okay, here's my experience watching it, right? Shutting the windows. Remember, that's awesome. All the kids shutting the doors yeah. and windows. Everyone's looking out. Everyone's saying, we don't know what you're talking about. He goes, the landlord's daughter song is creepy and freaky <laughs> in awesome ways in that it's it's kind of a puritanical thing, but it's also like a feminist thing. It's like what are you doing to this poor woman? What the hell's going on? And he feels weird about it, but he feels weird about it because he was, you know, stiff up a lip British. Yep. But it's also like, yeah, but that's still creepy for this poor kid that called Willow. But then he walks out to the cemetery after dinner 
And it's like, it reminds me a lot of Zabriskie Point. You know that yeah, Antonio yeah, film yeah, yeah, yeah. where there's that montage in the desert where everyone's making love. Oh, yeah. that's pairs. I haven't seen Zabriskie Point in years. Yeah, well, and you got the weird stills as well. Yes, and it's a stunning yeah, moment of of just um, and but for Zabriskie Point, and this is like a couple of years earlier that film, that is saying you know that's that's Antonioni being crazy, being mm. what he contemporary nuts and saying hey look at this weird sexual thing, the world's sexual. But this is the cemetery is sexual, and it looks like that. But I think that modern day, that modern filmmaking technique thrust into this British polite story and yeah. onto this guy would have been. And again, hard that's to the stomach. key distinction. I think that you had the Hammer tradition. Yeah, you got people like Antonio because Antonio only did a lot of British stuff as well. Right? Yeah, so he did, um, you know, blow up, blow up, yeah, up, blow up, nineteen sixty six. So, but those are so obviously art house filmmakers auteur works that's right once i i think to push a pagan horror movie in the way that this was trying to do would have been viewed as an affront to like the norm but also you look at the nudity in ham horror it's always designed to titillate absolutely or or seduce yeah and it's like well you bought into this you were seduced by this lady vampire you deserve to die and And also those are like erotic figures right everyone in a horror movie like every female is there as a kind of erotic object which is not precisely how Britt Eklund is. Or Ingrid, none of it, yeah. because Woodward is never enticed by it. He's not seduced. It's not, he's not plugged he's, in. Although, but he's repressed, right? He's repressed, he repressed so, yeah. so he is usually attracted and, and in a very visceral, physical sense to Britt Eklund. Yes. That scene in, that, you know, in the room where yeah. he's like well, he's sweating and through the wall, and she's in the bed, and she's looking, and then... He's in the bed, yeah. and the two beds in different rooms are the perspectives exactly facing but each other. But I wonder other, again if that's that's the affront to the the British sensibility, because at the same time you've got all the Doctor and Carry On films, which mm. are sex comedies, which is like, oh, that's what you want to see. Oh, you <laughs> love that. Oh, everything yeah, yeah, yeah. is about a celebration. But you, you're right. Uh, the, the the Carry On movies, for example, yeah. right? the Benny Hill thing. Yeah, that was. The, in a sense, it was safe to experience that. Yes, right? th- that's codified. Like you're allowed you're to allowed laugh to. because we're laughing but at it. And yeah, aren't men? But Edward Woodward is not supposed no. to get aroused yeah. by this. And, and, and I, I don't know, like you, that sequence, like haunted my dreams. You know, for, <laughs> for, because it puts you in the position of like. I am repressed and mm. there's so- I'm craving something and I can't control it yeah. as a spectator, but also through the lens of Edward Woodward as the protagonist. But and see, I mean, for years, I that scene was so like just compelling for me. But with a lot of movies like this that are complex and they lead to discussion and they've got a history behind them, you can take lots of lenses and place them over the top of it. So, for example, I read a bunch of stuff where... Um, people reference more the political change going through the UK. So this is like 1973. The UK is going through massive transition. Uh, you know, the mines are getting closed, the centralization, labor losses. Margaret Thatcher would come into power a few years later. Mm. So people are saying it's, it's re- you know, in rejecting Britain, that's the affront. That's the affront. So not necessarily is it religion, is it sexuality, but it's the fact that there's a transition at play. And it's and it's a, it's an argument against where Britain was going. So I found that quite interesting, also mm. as an analysis. You know, so the different ways to look at the. At I, I think that's true. The way that I always see the Wicker Man is, it's part of that incredible uh, set of movies in the sixties. You referenced Repulsion before, where films trying to explore what it means to be sexually repressed, 
and then what happens when um, something is let is 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 allowed to be free. And I I mean I love that, that's what cinema can do, right? That's the the beauty of of this kind of cinema. Because for me as a spectator, certainly when I was when I watched The Wicker Man, it is like having a kind of I don't want to say a sexual experience, or no, but, a, but a kind of an experience yeah. of awakening. That's what yeah. the, I think the movie provides. But it's one of those movies where I think it's been unjustly treated. I think mm. it's hard to... I find it hard to connect with Edward Woodward's character. I think the mm. kind of person who connects to Edward Woodward's character isn't watching a horror movie. <laughs> like, mm. I feel like, no, I'm not doing that in the first place. But when you watch Midsummer. I connect so much with Florence Pugh, oh, with she, all of that, I those mean, college kids. Talk about a powerhouse performance. That's where I'm like, oh, I can connect that. And maybe it's because it's the history of movies where college yep. kids go off I also liked all stuff. the arguments about PhDs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was really would. funny watching that. <laughs> yeah. See, I do connect with Edward Woodward, not because I understand his character so much or his motivations, but because um, I think it's leaving your home and entering an environment that's completely unfamiliar and also yeah. to some extent intimidating and dangerous. Mm. We all understand that to some extent, right? Yep. I mean, I, I remember arriving at university not knowing what the hell was going on or mm. not knowing a single person and thinking, all right, this is pretty confronting. That That's the Edward Woodward. Now, I didn't respond in the way Woodward did, but there you go, right? I mean, everyone <laughs> or knows. Did you? No yeah. one knows. Everyone yeah. knows what it's like to be there the outsider. There was that six-month period, man, <laughs> in 1996. Uh, <laughs> massacre. All right. <laughs> let's move on to our second film. Take two. Our second film is Midsummer from 2019. American writer and director Ari Aster had made a handful of shorts, including his graduate film The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which made a big splash at Slamdance and went viral on the internet. His debut feature, an A24-released horror movie called Hereditary, turned its $10 million into $80 million worldwide. So his second film, Midsummer, came highly anticipated. It's the story of Danny, played by Florence Pugh, who tragically loses her whole family to her sister's murder-suicide while she is away at college. She turns to her college boyfriend, Christian, a guy who would rather hang with his bros and is annoyed with the lack of sex that he's been getting from the traumatised Danny. When the couple head to Sweden to celebrate a pagan midsummer festival, they find themselves in the middle of an isolated location and witness to a multi-day festival that involves bizarre rituals, suicide and general weirdness. Throughout their stay, the group realise that they are essentially there to be sacrificed and mated with during the concluding ceremony of the festival. Our hero Danny is crowned May Queen and she loves it. <laughs> well, I guess that's open to interpretation. The world of the film is told through the eyes of the US college students who approach it with both an exotic and analytic point of view. The real perspective, however, is that of Pew's character who uses the experience to process her grief. The film is full of colour and light and most of it's set during daylight hours, which sets it apart from most horror films. The film turned its $9 million budget into $48 million in box office receipts and it was received mostly well by critics around the world with some of them praising it quite highly. Bruce, I know you've been talking to the director of this film quite recently and he's about to present at the symposium. What's your take on Midsummer? The first time I saw it, I was absolutely speechless. I thought it was immediately a classic horror film. I think I'd seen the hereditary 
I thought that was a major ambitious entry in horror. I couldn't believe it was the first feature. Mm. Even just the director working with actors with that level of confidence, you know, like Tony Collette's performance yeah. in a Ridge was just absolutely on edge. Well, right? you guys knew Ariasta way before me, and it's because you told me, both of you told me that you got to watch Ariasta. Now, Hereditary made a lot of money. It made mm. a big splash. People were comparing it to, like, you know... Well, The big, Exorcist. Yeah, the People Exorcist, compared it exactly. a lot to The Exorcist exactly. and in terms of um, how viscerally terrifying it was. The one thing I want to say, though, is anyone who watches Ari Aster stuff, and that's the features, the shorts, or even if you've seen the more recent Bo is Afraid, which I should say I loved as well, he's a filmmaker with a distinctive eye, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that struck me with Ari Aster from Hereditary. Do you guys remember seeing in Midsummer when the kids uh, hit Sweden? Mm -hmm. You know, we get that cut from... Uh, all the turmoil of the relationship is, you know, can Danny go? Can, you know, is he going to invite or not? It's done so well. I'll come back to that in a second. When we get to Sweden, they're driving. They've got to drive out to the wherever the, the, the reservation type thing is. And you get an upside down shot that flips 180 oh, degrees. Yeah. Now, I'm usually the kind of person that says, like, do not do that in a movie. Right, because something that ostentatious screams at me like, "Who the hell do you think you're, Orson Welles?" Mm -hmm. In the hands of the right filmmakers, it can be spellbinding. And I remember being so excited to watch *Midsummer* because I'd been so impressed with *Hereditary*. And when that shot happened, I thought, "Oh yeah, this is like, this is a distinctive stylist." Mm -hmm. And whenever I encounter a director who thinks about the form of film, I get really excited, and I know I'm going to follow their career. Right, yeah. um, and so aside from what the horror, Ari Aster is just a really important filmmaker. I mean, in the last, in the wake of Bo's Afraid, both Martin Scorsese and Bong Joon Ho said that Ari Aster is one of the most important filmmakers working in the whole world today. Right, wow. so to get that kind of, and they're not talking about because he has redefined horror. They're suggesting because this guy is a new visual kind of stylist on the scene. It's going right? to be... He's a formal stylist. It's going to be really interesting to see where Ariasta goes to from here with A24, with other well, stuff. Well, apparently he's making... I'm going to ask him this, right, in the... Because I'm interested in the next project, which I've heard um, early sort of reports on it's a sort of neo-noir western. Wow. And I'm... Because the other thing I love is... It's almost like we've now again got an exciting filmmaker who is pretty much saying to you, I'm not afraid of genre. You know, we talked about this a bit in relation to someone like Tarantino, right? Where filmmakers who think they're great, and I don't mean that they're not, you know, not necessarily about arrogance or anything, but know that I'm an ambitious filmmaker. I want to change the medium. I want to add to the medium. But I'm not afraid to make a heist movie. Well, I'm not afraid to make a Western. And it's exciting to me that someone like Ari Aster is going, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll do a kind of crazy horror movie. But I'm, I'm getting massively, or I'm, I'm watching again David Lynch that I've seen. A yeah, few Lynch times is before. another perfect example. I mean, I'm, I'm nearly finished with season three of Twin Peaks. And there's something about David Lynch where you can subtract all the story and all the characters and just look at what's in the frame mm. and that's worth the price of admission alone. I think that's where Asta is. I really feel that, you know. The last one I'll make about this when we, so we can talk about the horror, exactly what you say, what is in the frame, what is in the cutting, the way that sound and music are used, um, all of that to me suggests 
there's a really interesting eye and mind behind his films so that, you know, it, 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 it doesn't matter whether I like his film or not. I'm compelled to view it. And that's the, 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 what, what makes Asta so distinctive. Midsummer, I think, was an attempt from – apparently he was approached after Redditry because it made so much money, approached by a production group uh, to make a slasher film set in Sweden because they'd seen Hereditary. Hmm. They thought, wow, like who's this guy? They offered him the project to just – so the concept was, can you do us a slasher horror movie set in Sweden? <laughs> He said, yeah, that sounds interesting. It goes away, comes back with Midsummer, right? And wow, what a leap to go from we're going to do a slasher movie in Sweden to doing one of the very complex and original works of what I guess I'd call folk horror. I don't know, I don't know how you guys define it. I think of folk horror as I pull it out of the traditional kind of Christian or, or, or um, you know, Judaic tradition, and I... I, I situated very much in folk systems of belief, superstition, ritualistic practice, I mean, and then not that many movies like that. And The Wicker Man is obviously Astor's going, "Hey, okay, let's do The Wicker Man." No, that's what I'm looking but forward intellectualize to. Intellectualize the hell out of it. In, you know? in, in your conversation with Ariaster in in a few weeks, um, I'm really keen to hear how he sees Wicker Man and and Midsummer. Like, I mean, like, I, I think he what's must the con- adore what's it. What's the continuation? It, um, it's also such an homage, right? The other thing I wanted to say is the film is also, as you say, Craig, about grief. Mm. And so what he layers into – I mean, this guy is miles away from doing a straight slasher. He, I don't even think he has it in his bones to do that because he's, he's, he's thinking so much of cinema as an intellectual art form so that the Danny's character and her arc – is so complex, right? It's so dark. That sequence where the the the, the family suicide, mm. I just uh, that, I was I was watching that with I Kathy, was, my partner. I I freaked out. That was you know was, when the rock comes oh, down, Jesus. Yeah. And also, did, I I could so feel the anxiety when she's sending all the text messages and stuff. Like I felt that very viscerally. That wow, this. She's going to encounter grief on such a level. And also the hatred I felt for her boyfriend. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I. Now that was my favorite turn <laughs> in the whole film. Like the, the first sequence, the misogyny of the guys is excellent. I mean, what did you make of the, the bros sort of thing? Oh, I love right? it. I, I think it's very nuanced and very uh, well handled. I love handled. that word. It was so nuanced. I, As I, the, and it's not just that they're bros, mm. but they're overtly like intellectualized bros and you can't intrude into this. Yeah. You know, because we're all doing PhDs or, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of culture. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, a, it's like American pie. Yes. But it's trying to pass <laughs> yes. it off. It's trying to pass it off as in, it's intellectualizing American yep. pie, which itself is a, is a contradiction, right? It's which silly. Is a, it's a kind of college dorm, mm. but taking it from the intellectual point of view, like where the thing that binds you is your research, right? And I love the fact that that becomes the splinter. Yeah. You're like, you're taking, oh, you've just taken my dissertation topic. Yeah. You know, which is a thing you don't do, right? It's, it's absolute, you do not step on another person's PhD. So that's like a couple, I've got two sort of points that I wanted to run by both of you. The first one was that 
year the bros, for example, they're a world unto themselves mm. and they're a closed world themselves. They, they exclude by their nature. Mm. Then they get to Sweden, which is an open culture, and then, you know, they're, they're sort of not belonging there. So I think Asta is also slightly more interested in the fact that this replays itself out in different contexts. Mm. So that's something that I found interesting and personally. Especially if you go to Bo is Afraid. Which is going to be so much? And yeah, I haven't seen that the yet. The projection so. of Bo, right? In, you know, the kind of surrealist projection of of Bo's internal life, because you could see Midsummer as one huge projection of um, Danny's grief mm-hmm. and the fact that her grief turns violent in some sense, right? And the grief is going to almost take revenge on this this kind of bro, you know, because they get killed. Right, yeah, the, the the guys, and so <laughs> I I sort very much, you know, the elevation of Danny to the the, the queen, yeah, is a really profound gesture. Because and you, as you say, Craig, she loves it because there's this sense of I'm I've worked through something. I'm no longer like, for example, I'm no longer under, under the thumb of this jerk. I mean, it's like right? affirmation. Isn't this it? jerk it's, has it's, been sacrificed, yeah, and he is paid for because those. And somebody might, you know, people might want, I've, I've seen both versions. I've seen the original cut and then I've seen the director's cut of 171 minutes. Wow. Um, a spectator might say, hey, why do we need such a protracted opening? You need that because the entire subtext of the movie, I think, is how does Danny work through grief? And how does the space of this folkloric world, which is the complete other to these people, enable her to work through this. And the final, I think, irony of the movie is that the guys who are trying to study that world can't come to terms with it, right? They, they, they see it purely analytically and in a sense are then, you know, like contaminated by it or destroyed by it. And Danny's the one who's elevated, you know, to, to be the, the, the queen. And I think there's a, the, you know, the movie's super smart and nuanced in totally inverting what it suggests at the start. Uh, to get, we haven't even talked about the like what you guys think of the violence, for example. Well, we'll get on to that. I just want to say the nudity that or there's a trope in you know, every Cabin in the Woods college thing where uh, you, the, 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 they're traveling and they're talking and you prove that everyone here deserves to die except the final girl. Yeah. <laughs> that it's very similar here in their very intellectualist ways. They're having the discussion about the breakup chat in the bar. There's the... Um, She's not actually coming in the Sweden talk. <laughs> I, that then her in the wasn't reflection. that one of the most awful scenes you've ever seen. And then as soon as they touch down, there's also the meatball sex club talk. And then one of them just looks out the window and goes, "Why are women here so hot? What makes them so hot?" <laughs> and it's like, oh, man, that's, these the, guys that's are, that jerk, right? The, yeah, and, oh, but I it's hate just setting them up in the in the same way that that trope plays out yes. in a, sto- a slasher. And again, it shows you Asta's intelligence yeah. with, with, with the, the tropes of the slasher, the final girl, the guys that are going to get picked off, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, There's actually and, been and a great how, one. <laughs> 2023, like just the start of the year, I think. Have either of you seen The Blackening? No. no. Like a horror movie. Um, they're all black people, so it's yeah. satirical. So the gag mm. is, well, who's going to die? Because... Like you don't have another, so, uh-huh, uh-huh. but then you've got different people within the group, okay? And the one person has got like a white father and a black mother. So how does that play out? It's actually a very good movie. It's yeah. very clever. I'm gonna check it out. Yeah, it's got a big following now. It's gaining a big following. I have a question for both of you. So I watched Hereditary. I, I especially love the ending, the the sort of the ambiguity, the co- the complexity of the ending. 
Is there ever a sense from either of you that in midsummer, Asta has like embraced something much bigger, much more expansive? But does he ever have too many balls that he's juggling? Is, no. it, is there ever too much going I don't on think in the show? So. If anything, I wanted the film to be. The first time I saw it, I thought the film was far too what, contracted. Neat. Neat, yeah. Like I needed to be opened up. And then I discovered that they had a director's cut, which had an extra like 35, 40 minutes. And when I saw that, you get it's got so much more breathing. So where room. can you access that? Where can you get a hold of the director's? Uh, Amazon's got the director's oh, cut. Okay. Yeah, so in fact, people listening, I would recommend you watch the director's cut. See, Both versions are brilliant. My, my experience of Hereditary, the first time I watched it was... I felt that ambiguity at the end was frustrating. I was yeah. annoyed by it, and I felt like oh, you've thrown, I, I didn't... I felt it was like a David Lynch it. ending, you know, so yeah. I love that sort of not I, knowing. I, I wasn't thrilled with the ending of... I, I thought Aurelia was an amazing film. I didn't think the kind of Rosemary's Baby homage thing mm. worked perfectly. I Nonetheless, didn't, I, didn't, I liked the referentiality of it. I didn't mind that. I just felt... Uh, it annoyed me because I didn't feel like it... it come, but this one, I felt like... It comes full circle. It, it yep. satisfies me because of whatever's going on on a deeper level. I think is I think thematically it's far more complex. In the folk horror of Midsummer, I think it takes the wicker man. He takes all the bones of that genre, and really elevates it into something so stunning. He, he never compromises. So we go through all the rituals ourselves. He lets us see it. You know the. The sacrifice, the self-sacrifice, the end of life mm. ritual of the people. You drink the drink, mm. and then they go to the top of the the, the, the rock face and, off, yeah. and jump off. Right? I, you know, firstly, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was so I just my jaw dropped. I was thinking, wow, has anyone ever shown? Has anyone ever done this before? You know, and again, the 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 guys are everyone's traumatized by it. But we as spectators are forced to watch. And we have to see it not as the evil other that you might get in a, in a classic kind of Catholic horror movie, but as an experience, a kind of passage. I didn't know what Mitsama was about. So an hour into it, it was like an onslaught. It was just, mm. like, just like onslaught for your senses. So for me, when I got to the final part of, um, of Midsummer, maybe the last 45 minutes, an hour... I was seeing Wicker Man, but I probably didn't get the same sort of uh, energy that um, I got through Wicker Man. But there's a, there's a part of me that thinks I really need to see this movie again, and I want to catch up with that director's cut. Well, so we're, um, can I say mm. we're screening Midsummer director's cut in DCP form Monday, November... Wow. No, Monday, October 30 in Old Geology. So you guys should come to well, that. I, I, I believe that the day this comes out. Oh, brilliant. So, so if, if you're, you're hearing, the, if you listen to it on the day, get in. Again, free event. We're what screening time is it? Six, I think I'm doing an intro to the movie at about six. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk for like 10 minutes and then we'll start at like 6.15. So that's the University like of Sydney campus. University and Old Geology Lecture Theatre. It's the one that's got cinema uh, tech in it. So we, we That's where we watch Tenet, right? That's right, Tenet. There's a lot of fun in there. <laughs> that was so Come great. along and watch Midsummer. I screened, uh, we did Blade Runner 2049 a couple of years ago, three years ago, which was mm. wonderful. Um Anyway, yeah, so, so uh, director's cut I think is important to see. Um, I, the last thing I wanted to say in my take is uh, it's wonderful to see a filmmaker taking on genre from a kind of unapologetic intellectual point of view. So 
in the in the way that The Wicker Man does as well. It wants to. It's a film that's as much about thrills as it's about ideas, and that's exciting to me because by the end of the film, I think you've been through a huge journey, and it's you know like Hereditary maybe there's a huge level of ambiguity about you know the the ending, the famous ending. Like how are you supposed to take this? How are you supposed to read the arc of? Danny, that that's also what makes it exciting. This mm. is truly a film of ideas, and the you know, in conclusion, I think Ari Asti is a filmmaker with some huge ideas, and I'm so interested to see where he goes in the future. All right, let's move on to our mise en scenes. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scene, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, the Tertial. What have you chosen for us from The Wicked Man? I've gone with the scene that I think most of our listeners will anticipate is the is the one that I was going to choose any day of the week. Um, but I also want to say it links to a couple of movies I've referenced so far in our discussion. Get Out, we, obviously we're talking very in detail about Midsummer, But it's that third act in these horror films that if they close well, if they move you on your trajectory into a place that ends well... It's all the more effective. And so for me, especially in the horror discourse, I think that the, this Wicker Man Mayday sequence is just one of the best things you're going to see for quite a while. Um, so you've yeah. chosen the, the end sequence? That end sequence. Oh, the, the, at the 75-minute mark, what will happen is that Edward Woodward is going to try and get off the island by flying his plane out of there. We subsequently learned that they've, they've disabled the plane to keep him there because he... In quite a convoluted plot, he was always going to be the sacrifice. The entire thing was orchestrated. He goes into his room, and then in, in a common sort of trope in these films, he takes on the identity of another person, he ties the person up and puts their costume on, and then he joins the procession. The imagery here is pretty amazing. He walks in on a lady in a bathtub, and that the, 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 her look, and then back on Woodward's face... It's kind of like bookending the, the, the sexuality, the the, the the pagan rituals that he's been exposed to and that kind of feeling that, that he's overwhelmed by his repression. Um, I think that's a really important scene. From there, there's a lovely long shot of led by Christopher Lee in his in his yellow in his yellow skivvy coming around the corner in his long hair in the dancing. Yeah. And if you know Christopher Lee, it's quite jarring to see him leading these people out on their May Day celebration. Well, he's also got a purple dress and a white face. Yeah, It's fantastic. We know that because we now know that Woodward is behind a particular mask. The mask of the fool, we should say. Oh, the fool. The just, yeah. and, and it's very much like a kind of Star Wars thing. You're wearing the Stormtrooper's mask and you're getting into the inner sanctum. And then Woodward makes the final discovery and he finds the girl. And that scene when he meets the girl... He, it's closure for him. He's, he, it's what he came there to do. And he knew that he was right the whole time. He knew the whole thing was this polluted pagan environment that had turned his back on Christianity. And when she walks him up through the cave and comes out the other side and you see Christopher Lee sitting there with, a, with his very strange kind of bob hairdo. And she says, did I do well? And he hugs the girl and says, you were perfect. Mm. In the twinkling of an eye, the viewer understands everything. You understand that it was all orchestrated. The way Schaefer has written it to be part imagery, but also part plotting. 
and furthering the story in a very effective way. Obviously, one of the most famous scenes in the history of horror, probably in the history of British film, Woodward then gets sacrificed. And as they set fire to it, just as an aside in, in researching for this, there was no time because it was threatening to shut the place down. A few days earlier, like I said, Anthony wow. Schaefer had prevented two people from coming on set with instructions to shut down the filming. So he didn't know his lines for it. And they had production people way back in the background in a huge white cardboard with lines. And then he would improv a lot of it when he starts chanting and he starts praying. The film, the, the scene now is, I think, rightly considered one of the classics of an ending to a horror film. Let me not undergo the real pains of hell, dear God. Because I die, I'm shriven. And establish me. It needs to be viewed in the entire sequence from the 75-minute mark. So if you get a chance to watch that in isolation, it really pays off for recoding what you think of the film from the very beginning when he lands the plane in the first place. If you get a chance to watch the movie even twice, um, you really pick up a, a lot more and you get a new kind of uh, appreciation for Schaefer's writing from the mm. end to end. It's a really lovely That's probably where Shauna Lyon gets his stuff. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, like so all the, the twist stuff that he does? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a twist, but in the best sense of the word, in that it's never fake, it's never misplayed. Uh, it's um, it, it's the it's the, the perfect summation to what now I think stands the, as, as one of the great horror films. All right, let's move on to our next Miss en scene. Miss en scene. Uh, Bruce, what have you chosen for Midsummer? There's a single moment, I reckon, where the movie gives Danny agency and demonstrates that the boyfriend, I can't remember his name. But Christian. Christian but where Christian is now, that power dynamic yeah. is perfectly inverted, right? Where Danny is obviously the outsider at the start. Yeah. Um, and now she's going to be the insider in the community. And it's the beautiful dance sequence. Uh, I love that sequence so the, much. The, the, this yes, is where she's invited. Uh, we're all. It's, it's yeah. firstly, it's a women's dance. You must be a woman to be part of this ritual. She gets invited in, and she's reluctant. And it's the reluctance of Danny in the whole film, and it, reluctant not to be invited in. But she comes in, and there's such a sense. I don't know how you guys felt about this. I just smile in that sequence because it's like what has been repressed in Danny, this um, inability to really confront the depths of her emotions, in a sense coming out, but not coming out as grief, coming out as a kind of ecstasy, right? Or coming out as complete liberation. And the way Asta shoots it, because we, as spectators, we get a very close communion with Danny. So the way he shoots it is uh, three lengths, very wide, like so we get all the dancers in distance, huge distance long shot, and then we get medium shots. Like, and I'm talking on a big scale here, so we, we, we see the dancers just perfectly framed, and then tight on Danny. And I love the sequence. You know where they hook arms and dance mm. between each other? I love that because he constantly bounces from her face to a wide, her face to a wide. And you see that not only does her reluctance start to wane, but that she becomes part of the community of these women. And my favorite, one of my favorite moments in Midsummer is, do you remember that Christian starts when we get to one of the wide shots? We pick up Christian and he's walking across mm. and he sees that Danny's joined in and she's <laughs> been invited. 
but he's not, he cannot be part of the community. He, for example, doesn't have an equivalent male community that he's part of. He remains the outsider. But it's also about to be used by the, the what, female community. <laughs> and presumably at this point he doesn't know, right? Yeah. But that's a big conspiracy, the whole kind of, um, you know, will you have sex with this woman is no different to Edward Woodward as the patsy mm. yeah, for, the, for the ritual. So Danny is elevated in the dance sequence. Um, now, the degree to which all of this is orchestrated, we don't know. It's not like in The Wicked Man we were told, as you say in that great reveal, um, you did so well, right? It's all been staged. But I've got to think here there's a degree of this was preordained, right? And I love the fact that you see Danny not only being invited, but relishing the performance herself. And a kind of, it's almost like a kind of coming out for Danny, well, right? I, I, being liberated from, one, your grief, but two, the kind of patriarchy of the bros, right? Yeah, see, and, I, and I love the way he shoots the dance scene in those three um, segments. I, I like what you say with the agency piece, and only because we've done Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently. Mm. But to, you know, in the absence of the, the kind of patriarchal or systemic uh, repression that they experience, when that gets stripped away, they create a, a, a community amongst the three main characters. They create a community amongst themselves. That's what I felt Midsummer was when Danny... Um, builds and becomes a new identity yep. yeah. with the community. Yep. So I, I, it's a lovely But And again, Aster doesn't go, transition. hey, that solves Danny's problems, right? Mm. It do, it's not like I'm going to let you off the hook because, of course, the film then evolves into a very confronting and strange play. Uh, uh, um, well, um, I still feel like it's a transformation. That It's a massive transformation. It, it doesn't help. Um, perhaps an audience isn't helped by uh, going, well, what does she do now? Yeah. She's now a queen of a weird town <laughs> she's never been in. Like, I still think that... If you think rationally at that point, good luck to you. But I yeah. also feel like the film also says forget about those Exactly, I agree. Right. No, yeah. and, and this is the other thing. Hereditary, to some degree, sets gives us permission to do that, right? Yeah. Because if you try and say, well, hang on, that in Hereditary, that ending doesn't make perfect sense. Okay, but you've got to also be aware where of the register Astor's putting this in, right? Mm. Like the history of horror. So you're right, Craig. If you want to bring any kind of literal mind to Christian's, you know, uh, sacrifice or to Danny's elevation as a queen, I think you're going to find yourself frustrated. But if you embrace this idea of just transformation and liberation, it becomes a really beautiful for. Yeah. And also, can I say, how amazing is Florence Pugh? Yeah, she's excellent. Well, it, it, was this the making of Florence Pugh like in, on the global oh, stage? Well, yeah. some people say this is the making of Florence Pugh, but I don't know if you've both seen um, uh, Little Drummer Girl, the, the John Le Carre oh, yes, I have seen that. miniseries. Yeah. So, she was um, great in that. That's where yeah. I first saw Florence Pugh, and ah. I'd never seen it before. The first time you see Florence Pugh in that um, show, she's auditioning for a play that's going to go on tour. And in the audition... Like, it's, it's an interesting thing because as a viewer, you're sitting outside and you go, I've never seen this person before. And she's magnetic in that. Mm. So Florence Pugh was on a pathway to... And now Florence Pugh is like A-lister, right? She can do anything Oh, yeah, she I wants. guess after Oppenheimer. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot she was even in that. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. It's a shame. She was really <laughs> underused in that movie. Yeah, I feel like that's just normal trying to work out women characters again. It's like, ah, oh, it's a shame that Florence had to do that. Do you know Oppenheimer's almost certainly going to win Best Picture? No. You know, the three of no, us kind of had an unusual response. No, crap. I mean, I've been reading about this. Well, I'm sad. really interested in that the Academy seems... Why do the, the critical establishment in the States has so embraced Oppenheimer? And for the three of us, it was it was kind of a strange Don't film. Don't make me the angry. Biggest, the biggest... Un, the biggest 
unpredictable thing that occurred with Oppenheimer was the amount of money that it made. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. I, I feel that these two films are extremely similar. They're probably mm. the most similar combination of films that we've ever done this podcast. Yes. I think it was a mistake. I think we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, what do you like better and what do you see as different between the two? Like... For me, I, I think you, you can see a lot. We've talked about the, the condition of Britain in the early 70s mm. and filmmaking then, and that's different. That was a response. Whereas Midsummer comes at the back end of a whole bunch of tradition of slasher and stalker and cabin films and into its whole new world. Mm. What do you guys see as the difference between the two? I mean, I, I think that Midsummer is almost a conscious riffing on Wicker Man and a yeah. kind of updating in the same way that I think The Wicker Man represented a hugely original work in that era, which was not well-known or respected at the time, but has gained, mm. I love what Midsummer did within horror. Like, everything in horror was either kind of, you know, repackaged slasher. Um, Jordan Peele's obviously huge... What I liked about Ari Aster was to re-inject folk horror into, you know, the genre, like in an American film. That, to me, was incredibly exciting because we see so little of it. And in that way, that's the similarity for me with Wicker Man. The difference, I think, is that the um, Midsummer is a much more uh, self-consciously intellectual work, mm -hmm. I think. I think Whereas, that's true. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, look, I like... I need to see, as I say, I need to see um, Midsummer again, and I certainly need to see the, the director's cut. What I love about The Wicker Man is that it's a tremendously contained little bomb of a movie. It's tight. It's very short mm. by modern standards. It's, so, as it's, you know, so, it's tight. so tight. Well, Bruce, I assume you like Midsummer the best. Herschel, what's your favorite out of the two? I don't want to say what's my favorite of the two, but... I love the contained nature of The Wicker Man. Um, I think Midsummer has updated it for a modern audience, and it's talking about things that The Wicker Man couldn't have considered. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna sit on the fence on this one. Okay, that's fine. Well, I think I'm gonna go with Midsummer uh, uh, as well as you, Bruce, because I feel like Midsummer. Uh, I don't know. I just I enjoyed a lot more. Wicker Man is again it connects me to my childhood, but I just enjoyed watching Midsummer. Uh, purely because I think it's a, a better film and I, I like it. But both great movies. Both great movies. All right. That's about all the time we have for this very special Creep Fest next week. It's time to have a laugh with two film comedies. I've been pitching this one for years and you guys hate it. This film... <laughs> One of oh, our I films. Wait, I forgot what it was. I know what's coming now. One of our films is an Australian film that made a, a huge cultural impact around the world and got the whole planet talking about the exact size of a knife. And the other <laughs> is a, a new millennial phenomenon that blended hidden camera footage with moustaches and mankinis. Yes, we're comparing 1986's Crocodile Dundee to 2006's Borat. I'm actually looking forward I, to the comedy stuff wait. and the off-kilter stuff that you know comes what? in both those One of the movies. reasons I can't wait for this mm. is because we arrived in Australia in 1986 and it was like getting slapped in the face because <laughs> Crocodile Dundee was, was everywhere. everywhere. shrimp on the Barbie boys. It was everywhere. Well, I guarantee it is going to be our hottest and biggest and most downloaded episode. I guarantee I, I it. Especially with Borat, though, because yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of... Um, 
energetic There's debate. There's so much about debate about those, both those films, Look, about I, yeah. the comedy. I think it's fair to say it's going to be robust. <laughs> and also, I'm invested in comedy, so I will be running my mouth in that one. <laughs> you can watch um, Borat on Disney Plus and Apple TV, and Crocodile Dundee is available on the Aussie Stan, <laughs> Stan Australia. Boys, it's going to be one funny episode. It's going to be great. I'm so forward to it. Very nice. All right, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen, as it will help other people to find us and just tell your friends to have a listen if they like movies. We're also on Instagram at Film vs. Film Podcast. Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for Film vs. Film. Take two. Film vs. Film. Film. Film.